Anyone who's spent more than five minutes in the American educational system has probably heard a story that went something like this. As a kid, George Washington chopped down his dad's cherry tree, and then he grew up to lead a ragtag rebel army to an unlikely but ultimately inevitable victory in the American Revolutionary War. In this version of the story, everyone in the 13 colonies stood united in their hatred for their British overlords, and wanted nothing more than to declare themselves an independent nation. As this episode will hopefully illustrate though, the colonies were far from united during the revolution, and there were still plenty of people in America who were loyal to King George III. Some of these loyalists would have stopped at anything to end the rebellion against Great Britain, with a handful possibly having gone so far as to conspire to assassinate George Washington in the summer of 1776. This is foiled. Episode 8, Loose Lips and British Ships George Washington was born on February 22, 1732, on his family's tobacco plantation in Westmoreland County, Virginia. When George was just a few years old, his father Augustine Washington moved the family to another tract of land he owned in what is now Fairfax County, Virginia. There, Augustine began construction on a house that would become known as Mount Vernon. And throughout George Washington's long and busy life, this seems to have been the only place he really wanted to be. Whether he was at war, presiding over the Constitutional Convention, or serving as President of the United States, Washington wanted nothing more than to be home at Mount Vernon. George's dad was not an enduring fixture in his life, and he actually died in 1743, when the boy was just 11 years old. Now Mount Vernon wasn't his yet. His older half-brother first inherited the property, but, in Augustine's will, the 11-year-old George was made the legal owner of 10 human beings, enslaved African Americans. Slavery is a constant and contradictory theme throughout Washington's life. While he would live long enough to develop a commercial and then personal disdain for the practice, he would publicly support the institution in the interest of political unity, and continue to take part in it until his dying day, when he did will that the enslaved people he owned at the time be freed. With no father and a cold, distant, and highly critical mother, George's role model in his youth was his older half-brother, Lawrence. Lawrence Washington served in the British military during a war between Britain and Spain during the 1740s. He brought back stories of battle to his younger brother, who was influenced by Lawrence in his later military service. At first, George worked a career as a land surveyor, but when his brother died of tuberculosis in 1752, Lawrence's example compelled him to join the British military. In the 1750s, the east coast of North America was divided between the holdings of the British and the French, who were almost constantly either at war or on the brink of war with each other. So in 1753, the British caught wind that the French were moving into the Ohio River Valley, and sent 21-year-old George Washington to evict them. This did not go over peacefully and the French and Indian War started as a result in 1754. This would eventually meld into the larger Seven Years' War that began in 1756, which has sometimes been described as a world war. It was fought in the Americas, Europe, Africa, and India. To keep a long story short though, the British defeated the French in 1763, and to pay for the costly war they just fought, they began taxing their colonial subjects. 
with no representation in British Parliament to consent to these taxes, widespread protests against British rule in North America began in the 1760s. This wound up escalating into shots being fired in Massachusetts in April of 1775. With there already being lots of professional British soldiers in the colonies, the Revolutionary Continental Congress needed an army and someone to command it. George Washington's reputation from his service in the French and Indian War preceded him, and so did his money. So Congress appointed him General and Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army on June 16, 1775. He took command of the Patriot Siege of British-held Boston, which lasted until March of 1776, when the British finally abandoned the city. This was a pretty good, but not perfect, start to Washington's command of the Continental Army. With Boston having been taken from the British, the next stop for the Continental Army was New York City. Washington arrived in the city in April of 1776, and made ready organizing a defense against the British attack he already knew was coming. He knew well enough that the Redcoats outside the city weren't his only enemies, and it's likely at this point that he began using spies to counter the network of Loyalist spies already existent in the colonies. New York had more loyal subjects of the king than Boston did, and Washington seems to have been well aware of this from the time he arrived. One thing his intelligence committee seems to have not known initially, however, was that somewhere in the city, there were loyalists actively planning to do Washington harm. This plot included some of the highest-ranking officials of the colonial province of New York, along with people within Washington's inner circle. For just a second, we have to step back a little bit to before the Patriot capture of Boston and set the scene for who's running the New York City that Washington arrived to in April of 1776. At that time, William Tryon was the English-born colonial governor of New York. He'd served in that role since 1771, and in that time he'd already earned a reputation as a shrewd politician and a hardcore loyalist. As an aristocrat, Tryon had ties to the rich and powerful of New York society, many of whom also remained loyal to the king. In 1774, tensions in the colonies were nearing a breaking point, and so Tryon decided to take a trip back to England. His impeccable timing got him back to New York in June of 1775, two months after the war had started. He immediately aroused suspicion from the Patriots for his loyalist politics. Fearing that he wasn't safe inside the governor's house in New York City, Tryon hid himself away in a British ship docked in the harbor in October of 1775, which he made his home over the winter. During this winter, he kept busy. Tryon operated a loyalist spy ring in the city that allowed him to pass intelligence on to British military officers and agents throughout the colonies. These spies would snoop around and eavesdrop during the day, and at night, they'd bring any info to Tryon on this ship, which everyone in New York knew was his headquarters. It's sort of like a James Bond villain using a yacht as his lair, but never moving the yacht and staying in the yacht 24-7, despite literally everybody knowing where it was. For a while, this tactic was surprisingly effective. Through his agents, Tryon bribed most of the gunsmiths in New York to only sell weapons to loyalists and to the British army. One of these gunsmiths was named Gilbert Forbes, and he will come back up later. Also while in hiding, Tryon had a statement published in New York newspapers 
that basically called the Patriots delusional rabble-rousers who the Royal Army would come take care of soon enough. The goal of the proclamation was to empower Loyalists to take up the fight against the rebels. Instead, Patriot protests and riots broke out throughout the city, with an effigy of Tryon being hanged and then burned, all while Loyalist New Yorkers hid in their homes. So here Tryon sat, at the bottom of a damp, dark boat, in hiding from the people he was supposedly governing, when word arrived in New York in March of 1776 that the Continental Army under George Washington had captured Boston from the Redcoats. In February of 1776, New York City Mayor Whitehead Hicks, who had been serving as mayor for a decade, resigned to take a job as a judge. During the colonial era, the governor of New York was also the one who got to appoint the mayor of New York City. So here Tryon saw an opportunity to get himself another loyal agent in the city. He gave the job of mayor to a guy named David Matthews. Matthews, unlike Tryon, was born in New York, and had been a lawyer for some time before his appointment as mayor. By most accounts, he wasn't a great guy. A colleague of his described him as, quote, a person low in estimation as a lawyer, profligate, abandoned, and dissipated, indigent, extravagant, and over head and ears in debt, end quote. Another of Matthew's former peers referred to him outright as a villain, and accused him of stealing and embezzling from children's charities. None of this really mattered to Governor Tryon. He really just wanted someone in the position who would back him, and Matthews already had a reputation for being someone who'd stoop pretty low in order to keep himself making money. So between Tryon's boat layer and Matthews stealing from children's charities, we've already checked a lot of the boxes in the stereotypical villain department. We can actually go ahead and check off another one of those boxes, because these guys had a lot of henchmen paid off to do the dirty work for them. We'll talk more about these goons in a little bit, but now that we've introduced the big players in the conspiracy, we can look a little bit closer at the actual plot that seems to have been in place shortly after Washington's arrival in New York City. Tension was in the air in New York City in the early summer of 1776. Everyone knew the British were coming for the city. General William Howe was in Canada assembling an invasion force. This consisted of veterans of the Boston Campaign, as well as troops shipped in from Britain. On top of that, thousands of German mercenaries had just been hired by King George III to fight alongside the Redcoats in America. Washington began making plans for the defense of the city once this attack inevitably came, but his enemies were making plans as well. Governor Tryon and Mayor Matthews kept busy, even as it seemed that they were soon to be rescued by General Howe. The governor had the mayor buy muskets and rifles from Gilbert Forbes, the gunsmith we mentioned earlier. Forbes himself had even been enlisted to bribe Continental soldiers into defecting to the Loyalists, and it seemed Tryon had some of his other henchmen doing the same. They even managed to pay off members of Washington's lifeguard. These were soldiers who Washington trusted with his life and who served as his personal guard. They were almost always with Washington, guarding him in camp on marches, at meals, and even while the general slept, all the while armed with muskets and bayonets. Different conspirators in this plot gave varying versions of the plan, and not all of them were recorded, but there seems to be some consensus in this. 
When the British troops landed in New York, Governor Tryon would offer royal pardons to any Continental soldiers who defected to the British. The conspirators would spike the American cannons defending the city. Cannons in this time period were fired by lighting the powder through a small opening in the back of the gun called a touch hole, and spiking a cannon meant literally hammering a metal spike into that touch hole, making it temporarily unfireable. They would also kill the top Continental officers, possibly including Washington himself. At the very least, they would kidnap him, which would most likely have resulted in his execution. Not only would New York City be ceded to the British and serve as a foothold for them to take back the rebellious colonies, but the entire head of the Patriot fighting force would be removed in one fell swoop. The American Revolution would be over before it ever really began. During the Revolutionary War, counterfeit money was a serious problem for the Continental Congress. They began issuing their own Continental currency from the beginning of the Revolution, and pretty quickly the British began counterfeiting boatloads of this paper money to bring down the value. Lots of Loyalists were caught making or distributing counterfeit money, and were arrested. One of these Loyalists was a guy named Isaac Ketchum. He was arrested in New York sometime in June of 1776 and held in jail there. Shortly after Ketchum's arrest, he gained some new inmates. Their names were Michael Lynch and Thomas Hickey, and both of them were also detained on counterfeiting charges. This was interesting because both men were at the time serving on Washington's personal guard. That wasn't the only interesting thing the two men were involved in, though. They began bragging to Ketchum about how they would be pardoned when the British landed in New York. They also talked about, quote, riflemen on Staten Island, end quote. Loyalists encamped outside New York, just waiting to swing in and help the British take the city back. But if they thought they had a quiet confidant in Ketchum, they were wrong. On June 17th, he submitted himself to the New York Provincial Congress and told them everything he'd heard. Eventually, it was let slip that Gilbert Forbes was selling guns to these loyalists. From there, it was discovered that Forbes had been given the money by none other than the mayor of New York City, David Matthews. Nobody knew yet how deep the plot went, but George Washington, not usually renowned for his ability to quickly make a decision, quickly made a decision. At one o'clock in the morning, authorities burst into Mayor Matthews' mansion and arrested him. He was taken in for questioning, and he almost immediately admitted that he'd been given the money by Governor Tryon. The mayor also said that Thomas Hickey, one of the big-mouthed ex-guards of Washington, was one of the henchmen that had been hired. Rumors quickly swirled around the city of elaborate assassination plots against the commander. The most famous one, which was entirely fictional, said that Hickey had poisoned some peas that Washington was going to eat at dinner. But at the last possible second, a woman on Washington's housekeeping staff threw the peas out the window, where some nearby chickens ate them and then dropped dead. This almost definitely did not happen, but the story shows the kind of paranoia going around New York at the time. This paranoia turned to fear and anger. A lot of local loyalists were tortured or tarred and feathered. All the while, Thomas Hickey was tried at a military court-martial. He was found guilty of sedition and mutiny, and sentenced to be executed. 
At 11 a.m. on June 28, 1776, 20,000 people showed up to witness Thomas Hickey's hanging, at a time when New York City's population was about 25,000. He didn't show any remorse until the noose was put around his neck, but by then, it was too late. Just a few hours after Hickey was executed, British ships carrying the troops ordered to retake New York were spotted off the coast. The city would be back in British hands by the end of the summer. The Battle of Long Island was one of the biggest early setbacks for the cause of the American Revolution. The British retook New York City, and Washington's army was forced into the countryside. But for Mayor David Matthews and Governor William Tryon, it was a godsend. Tryon was reconfirmed as New York's loyal governor, and after Matthews escaped from jail, he got his job as mayor back. After the Revolution, when they both lost their jobs, Tryon went back to England, where he died in 1788. Matthews moved to Canada, and only after the war admitted that he, quote, had formed a plan for the taking of Mr. Washington and his guard prisoners, end quote. If there was a plot on Washington's life, Matthews never admitted it. He died in Nova Scotia in 1800. Six days after the hanging of Thomas Hickey, the Continental Congress in Philadelphia ratified a Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. That didn't mean the revolution was won, though. Far from it. After being booted out of New York, General George Washington had his work cut out for him trying to defeat the British. A whole podcast could be dedicated to that task, but in short, the Continental Army was undermanned, undersupplied, and undertrained until a few things happened in 1777 and 1778. The Battle of Saratoga was a disastrous defeat for the British, and an important victory for the Americans in more ways than one. It was the victory that convinced England's old enemy, France, to get involved in the conflict on the side of the Americans. The French sent weapons, ammunition, soldiers, generals, and ships to America, where all of those things were in short supply. Then, the Continental Army itself was more formally trained during the winter encampment at Valley Forge. By 1781, the British General Charles Cornwallis was camped out at the coastal town of Yorktown, Virginia, pinned between Washington's army and the French fleet. Cornwallis surrendered, and even though the actual Declaration of Peace wouldn't be signed until 1783, the American War for Independence was effectively won but Washington's role in the creation of the new republic was not over. He was president of the convention that wrote the American Constitution in 1787, and was then unanimously elected the first president of the United States in 1789. He served two successful four-year terms, and then in 1797, finally retired back to his home at Mount Vernon to live out his last few years. After going on a horse ride around his home one winter evening, he got sick. He died on December 14, 1799, at the age of 67. George Washington is often called the father of his country. He led the military side of the rebellion against Great Britain, and then after the war, he set a lot of precedents as to what an American executive looks like even up to today. He also kept the new nation out of conflicts with Europe just as the French Revolution was boiling over. 
As with many of the other founding fathers, his publicly aloof attitude toward the continuation of slavery and for the repression of Native American lands and rights has garnered some well-deserved criticism both then and now. In addition, he was very much an aristocrat and had an aristocratic outlook on who should be able to participate in government. Still, George Washington is consistently ranked among the greatest American presidents, and it's impossible to say for sure what may have happened had he been assassinated in 1776. For that matter, it's not even entirely clear whether the plan was actually to kill him or just to kidnap him, because the witnesses and defendants all gave different versions of the plot. Had he been kidnapped, Washington would likely have been questioned, tortured, and then executed. So in this case, the difference between murder and kidnapping is sort of splitting hairs. Regardless of what the plan was, his life was in danger. If Washington had been killed in the summer of 1776, maybe somebody else could have effectively taken command of the Continental Army. After all, Washington was not an Alexander the Great or Napoleon type of general. He didn't have a mind for strategy, and he lost his fair share of full frontal-style battles. But lots of historians will argue that George Washington was the exact general that the Continental Army needed to defeat the British. Maybe the thing he was best at as a general was retreating, and if you're going to lose battles, that's something you should probably be good at. Time and time again, he was able to pull his forces back from a battle and disappear into the countryside escaping capture by the British, only to bushwhack them in another spot later on. Just as important, though, George Washington was the symbolic leader that was needed to win American independence. People from all throughout the colonies rallied under his leadership, and he was for the most part respected by his enemies just as much, and sometimes more, than by his officers. Ultimately, the plot against him in New York only solidified his base of support, though it very well could have killed him. 